still felt the same impact of racism on top of sexism. They were constantly given the least desirable jobs in factories and shops and just as consistently received considerable lower wages than white women, even when they were doing the same work. The Great Migration brought 300,000 to 400,000 blacks north within the space of five years, beginning in 1915, especially from 1916 to 1918. Black women, either with their families or alone, moved in substantial numbers, some to urban centers of the south, but most in the north. For the first time, job opportunities opened for black women in the textile industry. Traditionally, the largest employer of women, but equally traditionally, only of white women. Even in the South, the tradition was broken at least for the time being. The Norfolk Journal and Guide, a black weekly, carried the following front page headlines in the September 15, 1917 issue. Mill opened to colored labor women employed in hosiery mills of Elizabeth City due to scarcity of labor. Opening of labor opportunity heretofore closed to members of the race. The hosiery mills of this city that have heretofore employed white help, the story continued, on account of the scarcity of labor have opened their doors to Negro women and girls as a result of which 12 young women went to work at Passage Hosiery and about 14 at Lawrence Street Mill Monday. Northern Mills also opened their doors to black women. Following the lead of Northern Industries, which sent labor agents south to recruit black men, textile concerns began to send agents who brought young black women north to work in the mills. Some idea of the demand for women workers that necessitated this new policy can be gleaned from the fact that in several Reading, Sylvania hosiery factories, manufacturers advertised that they would install electric loopers in private homes free of charge for operation by women who, because of their household duties, found it impossible to seek work in the mills. But black women did move out of domestic service. In 1918, Emma I. Shields, with the cooperation of the Bureau of Labor Statistics and the Division of Negro Economics, conducted an investigation for the Women's Bureau of the conditions under which black women worked 150 plants distributed over the states of New York, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Illinois, Michigan, Indiana, Virginia, West Virginia, and North Carolina were visited. Of the 281,520 workers employed in these plants, 11,812 were black women, of more than 40% of all the women workers. But there was another side to the story. Investigations made it clear that the opportunity for more highly skilled jobs when it was available for women at all was a privilege of white women in practically every instance. The discrimination in wages from which white women generally suffered applied to an even greater degree to black women. In plants where white women were paid the same wage as men if they were able to do the job, black women doing the same work were paid less. In many factories, black women's pay regularly started at least $1 per week less than whites, simply because they were black. Invariably, too, black women replacing white women, even if they worked as well as their predecessors, was received from $2.50 to $3 less per week, $7 instead of $10, or $10 instead of $12.50. Not only did black women start 
at a lower wage, but as government investigators found, in many cases where white women received wage increases after a short period, their black co-workers remained at the starting salary even after months of satisfactory performance. It was estimated that black women, while earning more money than ever before during the war years, still received only 10 to 60 percent as much as white women, even when both did the same work. Employers' racist attitudes towards black women constitute the chief reason for the discrimination suffered by these women. Some employers acknowledged that black women worked satisfactory but defended their vicious exploitation by insisting that these women needed more training than white workers because they were mentally backward and less habituated to the factory routine. The most common complaint concerned their irregular attendance. Although nothing was said about the extra discriminations these women were forced to endure, which made the work anything but attractive. As more and more blacks poured into northern cities, the problem of housing grew more severe, especially as whites insisted that blacks remain confined to a narrow area. The black ghetto expanded rapidly in inhabitants but not in size, with the result that housing became a severe and critical concern. In East St. Louis, Illinois, race riots of July 2, 1917, at least 50 persons were killed and 240 buildings destroyed in the Black Ghetto. Estimates of property damage ran as high as 1 million. In a press dispatch, another of the innumerable brutal incidents of the night was the attack of a young colored woman. White men and women were among the assailants. Let the women have her was the cry among the men, and white women began tearing the garments from their victim. The woman's cry, please, please, I ain't done nothing, was stopped by a blow to the mouth with the club which a woman swung like a baseball bat. Another white woman seized the victim's hand and the blow was repeated. Fingers tore at her hair and her waist was stripped from her. Now let's see how fast she can run, suggested a woman. As a woman broke loose, the women were loath to leave her alone but after following her with their blows for a short distance, they stopped, and she ran crying down the street. The women next tried to get an aged colored woman who was guarded by three militiamen. One of them wrestled with the soldier for his rifle, and others succeeded in getting a few blows in. A survey in 15 states of the National League for Women's Service, the first systemic effort to determine the capabilities of women in all regions of the country revealed that in 1918 there were 1,266,961 women engaged in industrial work directly or indirectly needed to prosecute the war. The number of women employed in the industry surveyed since the 1910 census had increased an average of 20%, but in munitions the increase was much greater. In 1910, there was approximately 3,500 women engaged in the munitions industry. By January 1918, there were 100,000, but the survey also revealed the vast majority of women were confined to performing the simple and lighter processes and work of repetitive, deadening nature. The work requiring skill was reserved mainly for men. The work of women inspectors involved the use of gauges and reading of micrometers, burner calipers, and blueprints. All reports stressed that women proved to be excellent inspectors. 
Their delicate touch, quick eyes, and nimble fingers proved of great advantage in detecting imperfections in gears and engaging finished parts. It is significant that more than 70% of the firms employing women on inspection work continued to do so after the cessation of hostilities. Reports on the quality and productivity of women workers as compared with their male predecessors varied. In an early report, December 1917, the National Industrial Conference Board stated that women slow in acquiring an appreciation of the difference between a drill and a sharp tool and absented themselves from work more frequently than did the men. Six months later, the board reported that from a survey of 131 metal establishments, it appeared that women usually turned out more and better work than men, were more careful with the tools, and more punctual and dependable. The Lincoln Motor Car Company found that while women were a little slower than men, this was offset by their conscientious attention to every detail. The result of this minute attention was that their percentage of waste was very low. But what was probably the most extravagant praise of women as workers in the war industries came from the president of an Ohio metal goods plant. In reference to the occupation in which women have replaced men, the following may give you some idea of the work. In the machine department, women became expert in and got out much greater production in running turret lace, punch presses, bench lace, milling machines, drill presses, grinding machines, and engraving machines. And in addition to the operation of these machines, we taught them to grind their tools, to act as job setters, and to superintend some of the departments. In the inspection department, practically every inspector was a woman. In the assembly department, all were women, and they did better work and got out more production than men, whom we tried on the job at various times without success. We found, too, that we could place as much, if not more, dependence on women in coming to their work and remaining on the job which accounts for having the lowest turnovers in help in any factory ever heard of, which was less than 4% per year. We taught women to inspect tools and check them over according to the drawings after they came from the tool shop, in which department women became expert. In the optical department, most of the employees grinding lenses were women who were remarkably successful in the work. In the assembly of lenses, we had none but women on the job, and you will find by inquiring at the ordnance department that our lenses and prisms were as fine as any in the world. Auto School for Women Women's great opportunity during the war is to release a man for the front by taking his place at the wheel. Our training makes women fit for Red Cross and government service. Also for public taxi work, private chauffeur work, sales demonstrators, and for their own cars. Also special women's classes in mechanical dentistry and watch repairing, two well-paid growing professions, many opening now and more after the war. The same page carried an ad for a factory school festival which read, Young women to take war training for patriotic work. Here's your opportunity to learn business in an essential war industry and earn a good salary while learning. High school graduates preferred who have a knowledge of chemistry or physics. 
in one of the shop's apartments making scientific apparatus for the government. Beginners receive 25 cents per hour to start. Those who show ability are raised within 60 days and earn from $15 to $18 per week of 48 hours. Stopping work at noon on Saturday. Western Electric Company, Incorporated. Go where you're needed most. Help beat the Kaiser. In the vestibule schools, working conditions were reproduced as nearly as possible so that women might acquire some skills before beginning regular work. The schools varied in size from the modest type set up in one corner of a large workroom where about five women at a time instructed in the fundamentals of their work to establishments that passed 2,500 workers through an intensive course of training in three weeks. Recognizing as a result of the extraordinary demands for labor war industries, wages were bound to rise. Women flocked to the industrial centers where the government was laying large contracts for war work of various kinds. Since manufacturers who did not have such contracts could not compete with the wages being paid by those firms that had received cost-plus contracts, women workers in these industries tended to move forward. The highest wages, after the government revealed that many thousands of women workers in industries directly or indirectly associated with the war had formerly been employed in dressmaking, a spokesperson for the dressmaking industry complained that its firms were being forced out of existence by these developments. With so many opportunities open in their industries, more directly connected with the war, many of our workers have left this trade for more congenial occupations or for more pay. To those who have remained, it has been necessary from time to time to grant wage increases, though neither our percentage of profit or any increased volume of business warranted any such action. Estimates of the number of women who entered manufacturing during the war period range from 1.5 million to the War Department's estimated 2.5 million. Whatever the figure, there does not appear to be much dispute over the fact that these women came in great part from other gainful occupations, the percentage of those so doing being placed as high as 95%. All this apart from the fact that for most women the industrial experience of the war years was, at best, only temporary and ended when the war was over. Another popular fallacy associated with women workers during the war was that they were in industry either for patriotic motives or for the pin money. This theory was exploded by investigations that disclosed that 20% of the women at most were independent workers. The remaining 8,090 used their earnings as a necessary part of their family's income. The primary reason for the entrance of young women was shown to be the bankrupt condition of the working families. By the beginning of 1918, the Seattle Union Record had just about lost patience with the reports by employers of how efficient women workers were proving to be, how absolutely essential their contribution was to the war effort, and how well they had demonstrated that women were capable of doing whatever men workers had done before the war. It observed sharply, every trade unionist will be able to read between the lines and see what kind of hot air these women are being fed up with. If women are satisfactorily filling men's positions in so many cases, they should be receiving the same wages as the men would be receiving at this time. And it is up to organized labor 
to see that this is being done. We shall now see to what extent organized labor fulfilled this mission. An important problem confronts us. That is the question of women's labor. President John Hart informed the locals and members of the amalgamated meat cutters and butcher workmen shortly after America's entry into World War I. He revealed that the federal government had requested that the national and international unions admit women where contracts include closed or union shops and where the unions excluded women or blacks as a rule. Having already opened its ranks to women, they knew that they were entering the ranks of butcher working men by the thousands, doing the work equally as well as men ever performed and are unfortunately doing it for a much lower wage. Hart had little doubt that when the war was over and the men returned from the trenches, these women will say, we have demonstrated the fact that we could perform this labor equally as well as you and we now demand that we be continued in these positions as we stepped into the breach when the necessities of the war called you men away and now we demand that you continue us in our positions. Hence, he will not only be met with a business depression but a determined effort on the part of women to fill positions which have in the past been filled by men. According to Hart, there was only one intelligent answer to the problem, to adopt the federal government proposal. It was up to the various locals to reach their own decisions. But Hart warned, do not flatter yourselves for a moment that we are going to change conditions. The only hope we can see is to insist upon their being organized and receiving the same wage for the same work that the men receive but we leave that for the locals and the membership to think over, assuring them that it is an important question and that will greatly affect your future interests. Many unions complied with the federal government's request that they open their ranks to women and blacks, and they did so by adopting the following statement. It is understood that no objection shall be made to the employment of women or colored men if the necessity arises. Sometimes the words for the duration of the emergency were added, although usually it was understood that the necessity was for the war period. But many unions that did comply did so with tongue-in-cheek, no supporting women and colored men, thus leaving the statement open to interpretation regarding colored women. In many cases, local unions not only refused to organize women workers, but resisted their employment altogether. Their international leadership, in practically every case, defended these local unions that ignored the orders to follow a policy of equal admission, even for the duration of the emergency. Similar duplicity was revealed in the AFL's approach to women workers after America's entry into the war. The widely publicized Resolution 92 adopted at the 38th Annual AFL Convention in 1918 read, whereas the American Federation of Labor stands for equal pay for equal work, believing that women should receive the same wages as those received by men whose places they have taken in order to help the prosecution of the war and the elimination of the Huns. And whereas we believe that the best interests of the labor movement demand that a strenuous and continuous effort be made to organize these women into the trade union bodies of their respective crafts, be it resolved that we call upon the officers and organizers of the affiliated international and national unions to make every effort to bring these women into the 
organizations of their respective crafts to which the men whose places they have taken are members. Yet at the same time, the AFL was devoting considerable more energy to protecting males from female competition than to improving the lot of working women and organizing them into the organizations of the respective crafts. Gompers had made it clear that his main concern, as far as women workers were concerned, was to protect male workers from female competition. What Gompers asked would become of American motherhood if this trend continued. Certainly the first requirement of the day was to have all women seeking employment obtain physician certificates testifying to their ability to the type of work previously performed exclusively by men. Gompers urged each international union in which there are many women members to place his don't sacrifice womanhood message in the hands of the secretary of every local union of women wage earners throughout the country in order to influence them not to abandon their traditional occupations and seek to enter those primarily suited for men. Gompers consistently stigmatized women as a threat to existing standards in wages and working conditions. Despite repeated appeals by legal leaders, he deferred action on a WTUL request that he appoint two women to the Labor Adjustment Committee of the Council of National Defense, and it took many such requests from the League, some of them harshly worded before he agreed to create a subcommittee on women in industry. Please share this podcast with your family and friends. If you like our podcast, please rate us on iTunes. It helps others find us. If you would like to contact us, we have various ways to do so in our show notes, along with contact information for the National League of Justice and Security Professionals. Thank you for listening.